Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the curve and read the tea leaves on future fuels and vehicles issues? Are you one of those people trying to figure out how to make it happen? Then you're in the right place. My name is Tammy Klein, and with me today is Joss Dings, the Executive Director of Transport Environment in Europe. And we're going to talk about some of the low-carbon transport fuels and vehicles issues that are really impacting Europe and the issues that Transport Environment is working on very closely. Joss, again, is the Executive Director of Transport Environment, and previous to that, he was head of the Transport Division of CE Delft, a very respected environmental consultancy based in Europe. Welcome to the program, Joss. It's great to have you with us. Can you talk a little bit for the listeners outside of Europe who may not be familiar with Transport Environment, who you all are and what you do? Yes, we are an environmental group. We are a federation. We have a lot of federations, primarily national groups that uh, you know come together at a European level because they see that a lot of their issues cannot be dealt with at a, at a, at a national level and need to be dealt with at a European level. That happened to us 25 years ago when like five countries came together and tried to set us up. And we've now expanded to uh, 50 member organizations across the continent in uh, around uh, 23 uh, European countries. So we cover almost all of the EU, which currently still consists of, of 28 member states. And uh, what we do is uh, we are based in Brussels. And, uh, you know, Brussels is uh, the capital of Europe, if you like, where, you know, all European-level politics are being uh, decided. So that's where we work. And we try to, you know, basically green uh, every single transport mode in Europe, you know, if it moves and it pollutes, that's when you are in our in our in our crosshairs, if you like, and uh, we will try to clean you up. So we cover aviation, shipping, cars, trucks, uh, vans, uh, trains, uh, anything. So uh, at a European level. That's great. Thanks uh, so much for that background. And yes, you're really into, or transport environment really is into everything. And so this interview is is kind of wide-ranging. But I want to talk a little bit about road transport and some of the issues that are going on there. So I'm just going to dive right in with the first question. And so here's the preface. So we know that the European institutions and the member states have taken a number of actions over the last 10 to 15 years to reduce pollution from transport, emission standards, clean fuels, so on and so forth. So what is kind of surprising to me, I guess, as an outsider to Europe, and maybe not so surprising to those who live and work in Europe, but after all of these efforts, one thing that I noticed recently that's really becoming more and more out there in the public domain is that first, you know, many European cities do not meet air quality standards, especially for particulate matter, and particulate matter is projected to, to get worse, and we know that that's a real public health danger. Number two, Greenhouse gas levels are at their lowest since 1990. European Environment Agency recently put out data showing that greenhouse gases have increased 17%, growing from 124 million tons from 1990 to 2014, and then 7 million tons alone just between 2013 and 2014. So 
now we know that there are countries, including those in Europe, that are subject to Paris Agreement targets. And it, that seems like a, a really tough target to meet. So my question to you is, what happened here and what needs to happen now from a policy perspective to get Europe on track and the member states on track to reduce air pollution, reduce greenhouse gases, and to even attempt to meet Paris Agreement targets? Let me start with air pollution. I think uh, the most straightforward answer to why we are still experiencing so many air pollution issues in our cities is uh, diesel. Uh, we have an awful lot of diesel cars. The main reason for that is that uh, we tax diesel more lightly uh, than we tax uh, gasoline as a fuel. So a lot of Europeans are tempted to buy diesel cars, particularly when they drive them lots of miles so that they can earn, earn that investment back. And, you know, the diesel car, well, uh, it's not a secret for most professionals in the field that um, uh, over the past year has become very, very clear that it's still a huge polluter and that uh, manufacturers have been great at reducing emissions in the test, have done very little, if anything, to clean up uh, the emissions in, in the real world. They have essentially... Almost across the board, they have been cheating. This has not just been limited, limited to, uh, to Volkswagen. Uh, it's now been exposed you know, for virtually every car brand that emissions on the road are multiple times higher than, than, uh, than emissions in the lab. It's a huge scandal. It's not the case that nothing is happening. You know, there are actions being taken. And we are introducing test procedures. But a big problem here is that you in America, there's the EPA, which is a national body which enforces for all 50 states. In Europe, we have organized the enforcement of standards on a national level. And then you get the situation that uh, German government protects German car makers, the French uh, government protects French car makers, the Italian government protects Italian car makers, and uh, your rules are just not being enforced. So Europe is now trying to get that sorted by uh, introducing more centralized uh, you know, oversight to, to testing and enforcement. That's difficult. People are not, not very happy to give Brussels more power these days, especially after the U UK referendum. But, uh, you know, we're getting there step by step. But it's a huge scandal and a huge wake-up call for, you know, regulators and industry alike and poses huge questions over the future of uh, diesel. As an export product, it's, it's, it's really close to dead. And, uh, you know, domestically speaking, there's also big, uh, big clouds hanging over it. So, you know, that's in a, in a very, very short nutshell, the air pollution, the biggest air pollution issue in Europe is that the fact that we have a lot of diesels and they haven't, uh, they haven't cleaned up nearly, uh, nearly enough. On climate, yes, emissions are up since 1990, but, you know, they were much more up by 2007. That was peak. We had peak transport greenhouse gas emissions in 2007. And since then, they have fallen by around 12%. Now, that is not nearly enough, and it was to a large extent caused, of course, by the economic crisis and by, by the high oil prices that we had uh, since 2007, which both helped to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions and fuel use and, and transport. But also, partly it was because our vehicles have become a little bit more efficient. So, particularly our cars have become uh, a little bit more efficient as a result of regulation. But here again, we have a big issue that... The cars are much better 
in the lab, in the test, than they are on the road. So if you and I start driving these new cars, they are not nearly as efficient as, as they are proclaimed to be. So you know, that's another issue that is, uh, that is in the works. We have a change in the test cycle is foreseen towards a better test cycle, which hopefully will sort some of these issues out. But the important thing is, if we want to get a better handle on these issues into the future, then we do not just need tighter fuel economy standards for vehicles. We also need a much, much better way of making sure that the theoretical fuel economy that the vehicles reach in the lab also get translated to reductions on the road when you and, you and I start driving, driving these cars. And this is exactly what, what, uh, what we are working on uh, right now. So I, I do want to go into Dieselgate a little bit further because, yeah, the hits, hits keep coming. The French just released diesel emissions data, test results suggesting that while cheating could not be confirmed, there are, quote, irregularities. And so aside from centralizing or, or working toward more centralizing the enforcement, um, and I do agree with Margot Oge on this. I, I think this is really, really uh, necessary. I mean, that's the one thing that I've actually seen working on clean fuels, because for years we would say to governments, I mean, it's one thing to you know, anybody can propose specifications. I mean, that's really the easy part. The easy part is agreeing that. The tough thing is to then go out in the market and test and enforce. And in my experience, the enforcement piece is the most important, and that is actually what's most lacking. So, um, and I think we've seen it. I, I've most mostly experienced this on the fuel side, not really so much on the vehicle side <laughs> until now. I mean, is there more that the commission should be doing, in your view, to address Dieselgate? There's definitely more. So, you know, I, some first steps, I mentioned the centralized enforcement. That is absolutely key. Without it, we don't tackle the root of the issue. But, of course, beyond that, you need also better, much better testing itself. Huh? So we are going to introduce, uh, starting next year in Europe, a real drive emissions test, which uh, is essentially a random cycle. So what you do, you take a vehicle that's going to be certified, you take it out of the lab, you take it on the road, and you subject it to a random driving pattern, you know, and then you establish a limit for how much the vehicle can emit under this random cycle. And this is extremely important, the, the randomness of this thing, because if a cycle is random, it becomes a lot more hard, a lot harder for the manufacturer to optimize the vehicle for a test, because if you don't know what the test is going to be, it's much more difficult to, well, to cheat your way out of it. I'm not saying it's impossible. For example, you can still, if the vehicle is transferred from a lab to an open road, that uh, it's, going to be, it's going to be tested. So you can still perfectly program the vehicle to stay clean for a couple of hundred more miles after it's been taken out of a lab. You know, all that is possible. But it's definitely an improvement. The issue is that this new test just applies to NO2, so to NOx. It doesn't apply to particles. That's another thing that we need to, need to start looking at a real drive test for particles. It certainly doesn't apply to CO2, so fuel economy. That's another aspect we need to, uh, we need to bring in. And one also really important thing, it doesn't apply to an average a random production vehicle. It just applies to 
what we call in Europe here the golden vehicle, which is a pre-production vehicle that gets sent for certification, uh, which resembles the ultimate vehicle that's going to be produced, but it's not the same thing. So we need a similar thing for random production vehicles so that regulators can basically take random cars off the road and test them, not just the one golden you know, certification vehicle. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that still, uh, that still need to be done before we get this problem, you know, in, in check. And then, you know, there's quite a bit of cheating going on as well with removing particle filters, uh, programming the car in a way that bypasses the particle filter. Chip tuning is a really hot business, which is a, a, completely, <laughs> a completely different, uh, different cup of tea and belongs to the annual uh, inspection regime. So, you know, you need a really pretty comprehensive program to, to get a handle on all these things. It's interesting because I, I want to turn to the to the low emission mobility strategy that the commission just put out within the last month or so. The interesting thing about um, Dieselgate is the test procedure was specifically mentioned in the in the strategy, but this issue about centralizing enforcement was not. Is that something that you found, or that Transport Environment found? problematic, concerning, or is it just too new a concept to really put into No, no, no. It's actually too old a concept because the action is already on the table. In January, uh, the Commission put out a proposal to achieve exactly that. So this, this is an action that is already underway. So the Commission has already made that proposal earlier in the year. So we didn't expect, you know, huge repetition of, of, of this issue because it is already on the table. But as you say, the, the strategy is just a strategy, so it doesn't yet mean anything. But So you can't win, let's say, the race at this stage, but you can most definitely use it, lose it. And we haven't lost it. <laughs> so there's a, a lot of good noises in the strategy. Uh, for example, that we need to set uh, our new standards as early as possible and not wait to 2030. For example, that we need to make sure that they really deliver on the road. For example, you know, we are really going to look at a Californian-style ZAV mandate, which is, uh, which is a very, very interesting development, which was not really on the table only half a year ago. And last but not least, uh, it also says we're going to phase out uh, food-based biofuels, which is language that, uh, that we really had been hoping for because that's, that's a big mistake uh, that we made uh, over here. And I believe that the U.S. is making, making two to, uh, to rely on you know, bad biofuels that take up a lot of land that could be used in a much more productive fashion, you know, for the production of, um, of road, road fuels with really, really questionable environmental uh, credentials. So on all these issues, uh, the strategy makes the right noises. The question is now about real delivery and real new pieces of uh, legislation. So I want to ask you about the zero emission vehicles, and I also want to ask you about biofuels. But before we get to that, I want to ask you about... Diesel, not only diesel, but fuel or the, even the internal combustion engine. But we'll start with just diesel. Do you see a reversal of dieselization trend, which has been so prevalent over the last 10 years or so? That's happening. You see, you see the share of diesels dropping slowly, too slowly, if you ask me, but it's, it's dropping slowly. And, but, you know, more importantly, I think if you look at what manufacturers are doing, they have, you know, very grudgingly and reluctantly and slowly are 
getting to understand that if they keep betting on, on diesel as their solution, that they're going to lose it vis-a-vis uh, -vis their global competitors. You know, one after the other, you see announcements of ZAV programs, of battery electric uh, programs being rolled out. And more silently, you're seeing diesel development programs being put on hold, you know, that there's no, not much money being poured into uh, the further development of the diesel engine anymore. And, you know, that's exactly, I think, what we need uh, in Europe. We have lost decades in Europe by, you know, investing essentially in the wrong technology, technology that is expensive. Let's not forget a diesel car is uh, 2,000 euros more expensive than a regular uh, gasoline uh, vehicle. It's intrinsically, uh, it's intrinsically dirty and has, you know, no climate benefits to speak of, especially not when you uh, compare with, with a petrol vehicle that you make 2,000 euros more expensive. You can hybridize a, a gasoline vehicle for 2,000 2000 euros and then you end up with a much more climate friendly vehicle than a regular diesel car which is just as expensive so I think it was long overdue that uh, uh, Europe's industry recognized uh, that it needed to put its money elsewhere uh, but we're now um, and to quite a quite an extent due to dieselgate where we are starting to see that happen but also of course uh, players like Tesla and build your dream uh, are you know playing a role as well by by stealing market share and value, very valuable segments that uh, Europeans don't want to lose. So you know I feel that there is a good sort of perfect storm emerging for a U-turn in in the automotive industry. You know I'm looking looking forward to see um, see the results of that in in over the next years. So I want to now turn to zero emission vehicles because when I read the low emission mobility strategy, the first thing that jumped out at me, well, there are many things that jumped out at me, but what really jumped out is, oh, wow, they want to go the California way on zero emission vehicles. Wow. So my question to you is, what should such a policy look like for Europe? And are consumers in Europe ready for, for such a transition? The question whether consumers are ready is a bit of a chicken and egg. If there's no supply, we have had very, very limited supply of electric vehicles in Europe. And then you get no demand. You have a choice of hundreds and hundreds of different models, regular vehicles. You hardly have any choice when you want to choose a, a battery electric vehicle. So that's, you know, a first thing that really needs to be resolved is choice, that every every uh, volume manufacturer has a range of EVs in its portfolio so that you have a proper level playing field competition. And in order to achieve that, a ZAF mandate is a, a great instrument. It, it really encourages everybody to develop uh, vehicles like that because if there's one thing that car makers hate is pay each other money for ZAF credits. Well, they, they rather pocket, pocket the money themselves rather than give it to a, to, a, to a competitor. So I think there's plenty of lessons to be learned from the Californian uh, model, what works and what doesn't work. Uh, I think it's really important to stick to uh, electric range, for example, as the metric to base, to base your mandate on so that you don't get just compliance vehicles or these fake plug-in hulky vehicles that can hardly do any any miles on an electric charge. We've seen a couple of examples of that in Europe and it was this was driven by regulation unfortunately. So we need to need to, to end that sort of thing as well so that we make sure that the incentives really do lead to electric vehicles that are actually used electrically that make a lot of electric miles every year. That's what we need and I think it 
you know, California uh, can offer some examples. But it is indeed truly exciting that for this huge European market, it's a, a 13 million vehicles market per year and 15 if you add in vans, it's a huge market that we have for the first time now a perspective of, uh, of a Zafman. It could, could truly be uh, transformational and it's, it's an exciting development. So I want to get to, in that our remaining time, biofuels, because transport environment and environment, um, as you've said, you have had very definite views about the role of biofuels in the transport, especially food-based biofuels. So there are a couple of statements um, that you've already alluded to that were in the low emission. One, um, the, the commission seems committed to promoting non-food-based advanced biofuels yeah. And a at least a it seemed to me a limitation or a uh, gradual withdrawal or phase out of uh, food based biofuels. So my question to you is, since the commission seems to be following California on zero emission vehicles, do you see the commission also following California? on perhaps putting into place a low-carbon fuel standard that is styled for Europe? We have a low-carbon fuel standard. It's called the Fuel Quality Directive. Uh, we, have, we have a thing like that. And just like in California, it is riddled with issues, you know, that uh, indirect land use change emissions are not properly accounted for. And uh, the emissions of unconventional oils uh, and upstream emissions from oil production are, also remain very uh, problematic. So, you know, we are all in favor of a, re, a reset of our own uh, fuel quality directive, which is our low-carbon low fuel standard, but it needs to become a lot more robust. So need to make sure that it does end all the goodies for bad biofuels. And I do not just mean a mandate. For example, biofuels count towards renewable energy targets. That should stop for the bad ones, you know. If your biofuel is not convincingly better than the fossil fuel, it shouldn't count towards renewable energy. Another really important thing is that even biofuels that today are worse than fossil fuels still count zero emissions. So, you know, you clean up your emissions balance sheet as a country and as a region, uh, in theory. Uh, uh, so you have the paper reductions. Without any reductions in reality, it's 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 diesel gate all over again, where sometimes dubbed biodiesel gate, you know, uh, it's the same thing. We pretend it's clean, and in reality, it's not. So that should end as soon as possible as well. The biggest problems are biodiesel. It is the biggest problem because the vegetable oils that you grow uh, for the biodiesel are almost all, you know, the, the new vegetable oil that is, that, is, um, that is planted is almost all planted in tropical regions in direct competition with rainforests. So it leads to an amazing amount of tropical deforestation in the name of climate policy for wealthy, uh, you know, Western European uh, drivers. It's, it's a completely unacceptable uh, way of doing things. It's a huge candle, and I'm baffled as to why the, the awareness of the scandal is so much lower than it is in, in, in Dieselgate. So we need a U-turn in, uh, in our fuels policy. We need much more electricity and maybe also clean hydrogen and some uh, more advanced forms of bio, biofuels, particularly those that uh, don't use land for uh, waste and residues. And we should phase out all, all those biofuels that use uh, valuable uh, cropland because it leads to an enormous amount of uh, greenhouse gas emissions and it competes with uh, nature and food production and it's just not acceptable. 
if the Commission were to put into place strict uh, sustainability requirements that account for ILUC, let's say food-based, is that if a producer could meet those standards, could they play in the market? Is that something that, that transport and environment could support, or is it no? I mean, we really we need to look at alternative feedstocks, and, that's, and that do not use land, and that's it. You know, you cannot look at these things just from a greenhouse gas balance perspective. You know, this is what the ethanol industry always does, just look at the greenhouse gas balance. You also need to look at an agricultural land balance and, uh, uh, you know, and food competition issues. These issues are real. If you divert, you know, food to, turn, to, to, to burn it in your tank, uh, you are either driving up the price of, uh, of food or you're driving up the amount of, of arable land. Now, one leads to hunger. The other leads to indirect land use change emissions. And the reality is you do a bit both. That's what the models show. It drives up the, the price of food a bit, and it, it leads to, to add extra agricultural land being cultivated, which is not just an issue in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, but also an issue in terms of nature, uh, because the new agricultural land invariably uh, you know, gets... Uh, converted in, 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 in nature areas where, where nature currently rules. So, you know, you have a three-dimensional picture. You have emissions, you have land use, and you have food competition. And on balance, we are not ready to support uh, food-based biofuels, even if they lead to modest life cycle greenhouse gas reductions compared with fossils. It's not just about climate. It's also about nature and biodiversity and competition for land. And it's also about, uh, about food issues, which admittedly, admittedly are not our specialty, huh? uh, but we work in close cooperation with development groups for, for whom this is the biggest issue, and we, we respect that. The only difficulty is we just don't have enough uh, non-food advanced biofuels in the market yet. So do you see Commission doing something on that to sort of in encourage, um, yeah. further encourage? We don't think the, uh, the cure is better, better than the disease, frankly, frankly speaking. So, uh, and, you know, you're also talking about a situation, as long as you keep supporting fuels that you know you will have to phase out or are not, are, are not scalable or you don't want to scale, you know, the better fuels don't stand a chance because you have an ambiguous policy. You say, as long as you have an all of the above biofuels, the better ones will simply not have a chance. So you need to send a very clear signal to the marketplace. You know, these are the kind of fuels we can accept, and these ones are the ones we cannot accept and not be ambiguous about it. And that gives the advanced biofuels a much, much bigger chance of success. If they have to compete with much inferior fuels because they get the same, you know, goodies and subsidies and mandates and, and zero countings, then it will remain very, very difficult for advanced biofuels to compete in the marketplace. I think we kind of have that situation in different parts of the world, um, even in, in the U.S. I mean, we have a lot of ethanol in the market, uh, a lot of um, corn-based ethanol, and, you know, there's really not a lot of room to play. I mean, aside from the fact that the technology hasn't, quite matured, that scale-up is, is just bar barely beginning to happen now, we, um, you know, there's really not much room for them to play in the market except for in California. We have exactly the same thing. You see, in, in Europe, uh, our biggest biofuel is biodiesel, 
Okay. So you have roughly three categories of biofuels, very, very roughly three categories of biofuels. You have bio, first-gen uh, biodiesel, first-gen bioethanol, and, and advanced uh, between brackets. You know, First-gen biodiesel, we have a lot, and it's terrible. <laughs> first-gen bioethanol, we have, well, moderate amounts, and it's, it's not entirely terrible. And we have the advanced, which is much better, but we don't ha have anything of it. That should tell you something. You know, uh, a one-size-fits-all biofuels policy is doomed to fail. You need to be selective. Thanks for listening, everybody. And thank you, Joss, for being on the show today and talking with me. It was a really interesting conversation, and I hope to have you back as uh, fuels and transport and vehicles issues continue to evolve in Europe um, and elsewhere, because the fact is a lot of countries actually follow Europe on their fuel, fuels and vehicles policy. So I think there's kind of an added dimension that other countries don't have that the member states and the and Europe have there is an example that is set that many yeah. countries are following so it's a it's there's an interesting dimension there that is not present in policy making in other in other countries Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, please do us a favor before you go today. I promise it takes 30 seconds. Head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking and keeping the show visible so that other people can discover and hopefully benefit from it. Uh, thanks ahead of time for helping us out. And if you're looking for more insight and analysis on low-carbon fuels and vehicles issues, sign up for my free weekly newsletter at futurefuelsstrategies.com. Thanks again.